Welcome to Grab the Gavel, a podcast from the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. The conversations presented aim to show students the human side of judges, their diversity, backgrounds, and common struggles. We hope these insights might inspire students to consider legal careers or even grab the gavel themselves one day as a judge. Now, here's your moderator, Judge Zia Faruqi. Hi, everybody. I'm excited to be here with my friend, Judge Laurel Beeler, a magistrate judge in California, the Northern District. Uh, thanks so much for being with us here, Judge Beeler. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Great. Uh, and so one of the things we'd like to begin with on Grab the Gavel is before we start getting into kind of the career path and things like that, let, let's just go back to the beginning. I, I always like to find out people from all over uh, who become judges, sometimes where they grew up and end up staying there, and other people from uh, further parts. I grew up in the Maryland, uh, D.C. area, and I am kind of uh, stuck around here. Um, but tell us about you. Where, are you. where did you grow up? Well, my mom's from D.C. originally, but I'm from New York. And then when I was 12, we moved to Maine. So I, I, those are the two states that I think capture most where I'm from. There you go. And I don't want to jump ahead, but I do know that um, I think your your husband, is, you threatened to not ever accompany if you moved to D.C. So a hundred percent, hundred percent. That was he's like, I, I don't think he said I, I, I can't do it. He said it in much more colorful terms than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. so we'll keep he's, a sport, he's a sports guy. So he did, you know, the idea of not being able to ski and do all the stuff he was doing. I, I think it was hard. He's a he's from the West Coast and yeah. it's a, it's a, it's 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 very outdoors friendly here. That's for sure. Yeah, no, that I, I knew my my one brief trip to Seattle. It was um, it's beautiful, and then I went down to San Francisco, and um, it is definitely you can see where people love to get out and go hiking and get in nature. Yeah. We have so much here, though. We have the Capitol building and politics. Who needs nature when you have that? But okay, I would, um, yeah, I would have been interested but, at least for time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to know you have DC roots. And so, yeah. uh, anyone in your immediate family a lawyer? No, my aunt, one of my aunts is married to a lawyer, uh, but I am the first in my family. Cool. Um, and so how did you even think about becoming a lawyer? Like, when did that idea even come upon you or where did you first encounter even a lawyer? Yeah, it's um, well, so I'm from a family of engineers. I don't know if I told you that before. So I'm a great disappointment to the family um, <laughs> and the, literally every kind of engineer from civil engineer to quite literally a rocket scientist. That was all of my um, my grandfather's brothers. They were all engineers. Um, I. Um, and I, I thought seriously about being an engineer. I first met a lawyer in a meaningful way for my eighth grade career day. And they had various, it's, I was in Maine at this point, living in a very small town, and we could sign up for who we wanted to shadow for the day. And I signed up to shadow a lawyer and I had a great time. He had me write a little brief on an estate planning case he was working on and I, I enjoyed it. We went to lunch and it, he, it was fun. And that's when the, I had the idea that maybe I wanted to be a lawyer. It was a, just an idea at that point. I decided to be a lawyer because I, by the time I got to college, I thought I'm interested in doing something where I can make a meaningful contribution in the world. And I had an idea that being a lawyer was one of those ways, although I studied nothing approximating the law in college. I studied philosophy and economics, both useful, but not, um, but not, you know, not political science or anything like that. So after law school, I did work as a paralegal to make sure I wanted to go to law school. And I liked it very much. And that's when I decided for sure to go to law school. Yeah, I think that to me, that's just such a, a great thing to do is, you know, um, I similarly had an experience where I was a summer in high school. My mom uh, got me to, through a friend of a friend of a friend, got me 
uh, to uh, intern at the Maryland Consumer Protection Division. Uh, and so it was an unpaid internship until they realized apparently under Maryland law, they had to pay like some stipend at the end of the summer. And so I got like my $5 a day uh, all at one time. And so it was very exciting, but I largely shredded documents when I was there, but um, you know, they let me um, sit in on hearings or things like that. And I I'm totally with it. I just think that that exposure, you know, you just don't know what these things are. They're so foreign so frequently and getting to see it is so helpful. And, and, when, you're, and when you're a student, if you do have a friend of a friend, it's always a great idea to ask. I've told you this, but I, I have, I have a high school extern this summer. I love having high school externs. I have college externs and mostly they're people who they, I judged one girl's high school moot court competition and she was brave enough to come up to me afterwards. Well, I think I went up to her and I said, I don't know if anyone's ever told you that you should be a lawyer, but if you want to be a lawyer, you should definitely be a lawyer because that's one of the best oral arguments I've ever seen. This from a, a graduating senior. She was she was fantastic. And she emailed me after and said, do you think I could come to extern for you this summer? And she came two summers after her senior year in high school and then after her first year in college. And then I got her another externship in the U.S. Attorney's Office and she took off from there. And now she's clerking for um the chief judge of the DC circuit next year, uh, uh, this coming year. And she is then will clerk for judge DJ in this SDNY after that. And so she just is graduating from Yale Law School as we speak. And it all started when I judged her high school mock trial competition and she was brave enough to ask. So I thought that That's was, amazing. I thought was great. Wow. wow. That's incredible. Now she's a total superstar. I mean, I think she, that she so was always right. a superstar, but she, yeah. but yeah. But her family's that there people aren't lawyers in her family. They're sort of in the medical field. But she's she was she was a great extern. She was a help and fun to have around from the beginning. So it's no surprise that she's done as well as she has. Yeah, I think that so it's your advice is just so good for any of the students that are listening is that never don't be shy to ask if you can find a way to to be um, involved, to shadow somebody or work or to, to get in in the get your foot in the door. It just uh, you know, I judge a bunch of high school competitions and things like that as well. And so, and just to be clear for an listening extern, intern, kind of in interchangeable parts, but just, just ask the judge like, oh, is, you know, can I even sit in on hearings or, you know, is there some way for me, you know, you can send an emails or something to say to a lawyer, like, can I just shadow you for a day or for a week? I think that's, it's just so cool that you, you have high school students there. Um, because and and people like to help, right? So when someone asks you, does it, it feels good to say yes. If you want to say yes. And if you have a teacher to ask, if some something that you're interested in trying out, almost always there's a way to, to try it out. Yeah, great. I think that's the idea of kind of, you know, apprentice, apprenticeship that's, you know, people don't realize or think about, but law school really is just, a, it's a trade school to try to teach you to learn how to do a job. Uh, you know, when you don't have someone in your family, like neither of us here, um, it, it can make it a little bit of, of a challenge, but you got to find your own way, build your own path. And so, you know, you after, so you went from college, you became a paralegal, uh, and then you realized you kind of liked it uh, and went to uh, law school. But before you get to law school, there's one story I, I have to ask because I do enjoy, uh, I think it's just so reflective of how brave that you are uh, about the things you believe in. And so you found out that you had a bit of a paid pay wage gap, which often happens to, to women. Um, so tell me that story, because I, I do think it's important for people to hear. Yeah, it was an interesting experience, whether it was because I, I certainly was a very young woman and the person who was a, several years my senior was a was a guy. And I learned that he made um, uh, uh, more than a third more than I did. It wasn't quite 50% more than I did, um, but, it, but it was pretty close, right? He made, a, he made a significant amount more than I did. 
and I worked really hard and I, I knew that I did a good job because I had that kind of relationship with the, it was a boutique law firm with the two partners I worked with. And I, I was all of 22 years old and a steam blowing out of my ears. And somehow I just marched in and said, this isn't fair. You know, it's not fair. I do this kind of work. I can't believe it. And, uh, and the partner said, you're right. And he gave me um, a big raise. He more than doubled my salary. And it was therefore some chunk of money more than the other person. And then he gave me a month's bonus of my new salary to boot. And looking back on it, it wasn't an enormous amount of money. But at the time, boy, did that make an, a big difference in my um, lifestyle. And I learned that it's okay when something is wrong, be sure you're right, uh, know your facts, uh, approach, it, approach it from a position of integrity, but don't be afraid. And I, I was not afraid and it worked out really well. I think that's some incredible advice is just, you know, you got, if you don't stand up for you, who is going to? And I think that it's so cool that, I mean, right, that you don't have to be a lawyer or judge um, you can be um, a college graduate, a high school student, but, you know, be brave and talk to a judge, be brave and talk to your boss and, you know, make sure that people treat you respectfully. And I think you sort of learn that at some point. I think we're all a little scared when we're in new situations. We're all by nature shy when we're younger and to walk into a room and feel like you can talk to anybody. That takes practice. And when you actually try it, you realize that everybody's uncomfortable. They're just dying for you to talk with them. And so you, you're doing everybody a favor by speaking up and talking and engaging. And so I think that quality of learning, it's okay to be afraid. We're all afraid. The issue is what do you do with that fear? And uh, I think it's, it's really great practice to um, not be uncomfortable to engage in a difficult conversation or even, a, you know, put yourself out there in an uncomfortable situation. Yeah. So, you know, you go to law school then uh, and after law school, you decide, you know, kind of thinking about things near the end, you start thinking about what do I want to do? So, it's, you know, again, unlike college, you're not thinking about that as a freshman or a sophomore, even as a freshman or a sophomore in high school, you're not thinking necessarily like, oh, I want to be at this college or this law school. But law school, you're really thinking from the beginning, you know, three years, I'm going to be at a job. And so what did you do right after law school? You know, you went to the court, I know. So I did. I did. And the process for getting there was was it had different factors. The short version is I went to the Ninth Circuit as a staff attorney and then went became a clerk for a judge at the Ninth Circuit as a result of that experience. The longer version is, speaking of, I was interested, I, I told you this, I was interested in going to DC and working for a year on the Hill and maybe getting a, a feel for what politics was. I was very interested in the real world. I, I say now as a judge, uh, every case, something happened out there. By out there, I mean outside of the courthouse. Something real happened to real people. And so it's, it's, it's the law is not separate from the world, it's part of the world. And I very much wanted some very practical experience where I got a sense of how things worked. And the reality is uh, of all the things I was interested in, the negotiation that I had with my significant other uh, was we could settle on San Francisco as a place we both wanted to be. And his brother had been at the Ninth Circuit and really liked it. And I respected him as a lawyer. I had been a summer associate at big firms and I did not know that I would have an opportunity to grow as much or contribute in the way that I was becoming obvious to me that I wanted to do. So that was what I did. And it ended up being a fantastic choice. Um, he, he recommended it. What happened is somebody I respected when I was talking about what I wanted to do suggested something and I tried it and I really liked it. So I think that idea of trusting somebody who knows you, who can give you some input into what options you might have, and then taking advantage of those options, that's, that's how I wound up at the Ninth Circuit. And so a little bit of that, I think you're 
references, Kristen, is, I mean, the importance we like to talk about is, you know, finding mentors. Mentors aren't always going to look like you um, because, you know, many of us are diverse backgrounds. We'd be, um, you know, there may not be, like at law firms, there may not be a lot of women partners in a law firm or a person of color. There may not be a lot of those. Or, you know, geographic diversity. You might be from a rural area and you're in D.C. and it feels like um, pretty foreign. You know, I lived in the Midwest and for a period of time I remember, um, you know, just culture is different. You might not feel like that people here know you. So you have to, you have to find mentors sometimes outside of your path. But but when you do find them really holding on to them, I know for you, you had a mentor um, who you just wanted to be like them. You saw them and that person um, really guided you on your path. So you know, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, it was. Well, it's interesting. I, I, I don't know that I was calculated about it. I, I think of it as accidental. And I was lucky enough in law school that I had some great relationships with professors, not because I thought I wanted a clerkship and you needed at least two professors to get a clerkship, as it turned out, but because I genuinely liked them and was genuinely interested in the work that they were doing. And so um, and and it was really more than two. Uh, and I really I was one of those people who enjoyed law school. And because I enjoyed it, I enjoyed my professors because I enjoyed my professors. I had relationships with them. And when I actually came time to apply for clerkships, I had that. Similarly, I got to know the dean of my law school's wife was on the Ninth Circuit. Uh, and I ended up doing a project with her when I was a staff attorney and it was, uh, boy, did I think she was fantastic. I thought she was amazing. I wanted to be like her, just like I later wanted to be like my judge. And uh, we hit it off beautifully, but it wasn't calculated. It was just because it was a great experience and I enjoyed it. She recommended me to the judge I worked for. And then he, of course, was responsible for my career choices because I I looked, I, I as I told you, he was an amazing human being, Cecil Pools, and he, uh, for, on every level, from his intellect, his love of Mahler, the fun lunches we would have, and just the life he led. And I won't go into those details, but they, he moved me. He was spectacular. And I had that moment where you look at somebody, you see, ah, there it is. I want to be like you. And that's, that was, you know, I had that magic realization and that was, and he was enormously helpful to me and in, in being an inspiration for what I wanted to be. And once you have that, it was some of the next steps were easier. And he of course was able to recommend me for the job that he thought I should have, uh, which was the job he had had, which was being a federal prosecutor. Yeah, it's, it's such a unique relationship, um, you know, for students that might not be aware of, uh, we've talked a little bit on a couple of episodes, but the clerks are really, I mean, to me, there's a very little daylight between the judge and the clerk. We are one sort of unit that put the three of us together. We both are magistrate judges, so we, um, you know, similar sort of resources, but put our clerks together and us, and we're the one judge. You can't divorce us from them. And so they're typically people who have, um, they've always graduated from law schools. Typically, they, you know, it's either someone recently out of law school or someone with a couple of years of experience, but um, really just the sort of uh, you're in tandem with them. It's not even like, oh, one's the sidekick. I don't, I don't, I know it's there with you kind of shoulder to shoulder. They're your ride or die partner um, or yep. partners. Um, and so <laughs> right. it sounds like you just had a wonderful experience with your judge. I did. And, then, yeah, and your judge is a prosecutor then um, he done many things. For example, I don't know if I told you that, but he 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 was the prosecutor that he worked as a professor at Stanford for a year, thought he wanted to be a professor. Turned out he did not want to be a professor, went to work in a law firm in a very particular law firm uh, with a friend of his who he had been um, he had been political. He he was uh, Pat Brown's. My judge was Pat Brown's clemency secretary in the in the 60s after he had been 
um, a district attorney. Uh, and then he was really good friends with uh, another guy uh, who worked with Pat Brown named Bill Coblins. And Judge Poole, my judge, went to work with Bill Coblins and ended up doing entertainment law. He represented people like Jefferson Airplane and Jefferson Starship and Bill Graham and all sorts of bands. And so the, his chambers had all and he had, as he told me, he had he had no idea he would have so much fun being a lawyer. And so it's but he his big job, of course, before had been being the U.S. attorney, then being a lawyer, then being a district judge and then being on the Ninth Circuit. So, um, yeah, I, I think what's so fascinating to hear about your judge, right, is like, um, something I just really believe. Lawyers, we can reinvent ourselves all the time. Someone who is a cardiologist stays a heart doctor pretty much for the rest of their life. They don't stop midway through and say, you know what, I'm going to become a dentist or you know what, I'm going to become, uh, you know, a doctor who delivers babies. They, they just, but that's so different than us. And you can go from being the head law enforcement officer to being an entertainment lawyer for a band to going to become a judge. And I, I just think that's so cool about being a lawyer. Yeah, he was a pretty spectacular intellect. So he was a very good lawyer. And but but you're right. I and when I was a federal prosecutor, for example, I think I had four jobs, at least four jobs, maybe five during my years there, because there were all sorts of different things you could do. And I think it is great as a lawyer. You 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 have a skill set that you develop, but it, it it you can implement it in different areas. And so you can actually make a complete change and still use your basic education. OK. And tell us a little bit about what was your career like as a prosecutor? Oh, it was. um it was great. I loved my I loved my office. I loved my colleagues. I came in, you know, I I uh, I came in with a very diverse class. I've been lucky enough that at the when I clerked and in my office, my the U.S. attorney at the time hired every kind of person you could imagine uh, from all sorts of backgrounds. So we're all the same. We had a class, right? So it's almost like it's not quite like being in college again, but it's something like that. And so you get yeah. you get you get very close with the people you work with. It's a very collegial working environment with opposing counsel and uh, agents. And so I started out with, you know, baby cases, guns, drugs, bank robberies, did some large drug wiretap type cases and then did a lot of white collar cases uh, then really moved pretty quickly into doing white collar cases and being a manager. I was a supervisor in the office, lots of different supervisor roles, but um, the I really had a great time doing white collar prosecutions. Uh, tilting against uh, corruption was always a favorite of mine. So I felt it was intellectually very, very, it was really fun because you get to investigate wrongdoing and try to figure out who, um, who did it, right? To actually solve yep. the mystery. Yeah. Um, and so then when did you decide uh, to become a judge? Well, I think I was always, because of the judge I clerk for, and because I went to court every day and I practice in what I think is a spectacular court, I think probably we all have this experience. We like where we work and therefore we like the people we work with or appear before. And I, um, I loved, I, I still love my court. I felt very, I felt very fortunate to work here, lucky, lucky to work here. And everybody was so right-minded in my old office. The judges are so right-minded. And it just was an idea I had. You know, again, I want to be like you. This is what I want to do. I didn't know whether I could get it, I, but I did know I was going to apply. And if I, I thought to myself, well, if, and I had a very particular niche, right? I did criminal, and a lot of what we do is civil. I mean, in my court, it's 85% civil, probably. Criminal is important, and it could be eclipsing when you're on duty. But but the the bulk of the heavy lifting is civil. And so, um, but I, I did apply and um, I thought I would be a job I would like because I had been in, I literally grew up in the federal building, right? I was at the Ninth Circuit. Um, I 
spent a, a blip of time in private practice, not very long before I got my job as a federal prosecutor. And uh, so I, I grew up in the federal building and I, I really, um, if you're in San Francisco, you'll know, I've, I've literally grown up in the tenderloin um, in the federal building. Uh, so I just had this idea that that's what I wanted to do and I was lucky enough to get it. I mean, I did try very hard to do a good job as a lawyer and that of course yeah. helped. I think that you have to be both be um, good and lucky and work hard. Exactly, all exactly. Um, and so we've had uh, circuit judge, Judge McKee, uh, and we've had a district judge, uh, Judge Huvel, and now we have Judge Beeler, um, who, like me, is a magistrate judge. Which are the coolest judges, I think, at least the two of us certainly can agree. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and, but maybe you can just give like a, a brief uh, sort of explanation. What is a magistrate judge? Yes. So, so the other judges you described are appointed by the president and they're appointed for life. And uh, and 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 we're appointed by the court. So if you think about any court, state or federal, there are trial courts, there are courts of appeal where if you don't like what happened in the trial court, you can say, hey, wait a minute, I want to do over. And after that, there's the Supreme Court and that happens in the state and it happens in the Fed federal system and we're the feds. And so we are trial court judges, but we're appointed by the court for eight year terms as opposed to being appointed by the president for life. So that's the difference. My job is in many ways very similar to a, a presidential appointee's job in that I have a very active civil trial docket. And the difference between me and an article, a judge appointed by the president, an Article Three judge, is the lawyers by statute have to consent to my hearing the case on my trial docket. And so we have a process where we ask the lawyers if they consent, and a lot of them say yes. And so a lot of my work is... Um, like stuff you see on TV. I have intellectual, well, I have civil rights cases. You know, that we live in a time where there have been a lot of police shootings. This week, I've been working on an order in one of those cases on my trial docket that's set for trial. Um, we do employment cases. We do business disputes. We do all sorts of civil cases. We do criminal cases too. The, the presidentially appointed judges at the trial level do the felonies for trial. We do the felony preliminary appearances. The, when someone's arrested, they come to see us first. We decide bail if someone gets out and what the terms of release are. And so those are the sorts of things on my criminal docket and misdemeanors to the extent we, we don't have a lot of misdemeanors, but if we do, uh, because we have a lot of federal land in, sure. uh, and, and you do too, I'm sure. So we have some things that are more minor that come to us as, as magistrate okay. judges. Settlement conferences, we do mediations. Yes. So that, yes. that's something different too. So the thing that really drew me to, um, to you and how we got met up initially is that you have pioneered a program of collaborative courts. And I, I didn't even know what that was. And I was only, and I've only been a judge uh, for a little while, um, but I've been prosecuted for a while. I'd never heard about this, but I think it's fascinating the work that you're doing. People think about criminal justice reform and think about all the different ways to come at that, but they don't know that. Um, I think most people know about what Judge Beeler and the folks in collaborative courts are doing. So can you tell us a little bit about that? What, what drew you to that? Sure. Well, I'll tell you in a second what drew me to it, but I want to say I need to give a shout out to the real pioneers. I'm sure there are others, but Judge, uh, District Judge Ann Aiken, now in, in the District of Oregon, and now District Judge, but then Magistrate Judge Leo Sorokin in the District of Massachusetts. Um, and they really, we, we visited them. I, I started 
I was interested, became interested in this as a prosecutor and the way I became interested. So I heard of them and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And this is what they were doing. They were taking people after release who had been convicted of very serious crimes, often had been to jail for 10 years longer, came out with no skills, no community. They call it reentry. But as somebody in Judge Aiken's court said, it's really I feel like I'm entering society for the first time. And the reason I became interested as a prosecutor White collar was different. White collar, you know, my joke was you have an MBA. Uh, I think you're responsible for what you're doing. Uh, a lot what I what I noticed in some of my cases was that people were had no skills at all. Uh, they were children of incarcerated parents and they had long some of them had long engagements with the juvenile justice system. And it was heartbreaking. And there was a judge here, Jim Larson, who was an MJ, who almost was doing his own little brand of intervention with these younger folks who never had any opportunity to build skills. And I was doing the cases at the time and we began running our own little alternatives to incarceration court. And I personally saw how counseling and a job and someone actually being interested in you made an enormous difference in somebody who never had those experiences. We were lucky enough right, as kids to have people who taught us sharing is caring and all the skills you need to be a, a successful member of society. And I've told you this, but later in one of my reentry court, one of my one of the clients, he saw his dad killed when he was eight years old. Another crawled out of a big old heating duct to unlock the door so his mother could go buy heroin to feed her habit. Of course, these kids grew up angry. <laughs> and of course, their anger got them into trouble. As it turns out, uh, if you treat anger with therapy, uh, it, an anger that's informed by trauma, treat the trauma, um, you actually reduce the criminal behavior and the addiction. So I learned some of those lessons as a prosecutor when I saw how well people did with interventions. Then I learned of these pioneers and the FJC, you've got to give a big shout out to Christina Looney and Mark Sherman at the FJC who are very interested in all of these things too and provided opportunities for us to educate ourselves. And so we traveled to see the courts, the FJC became interested. We persuaded mostly the US attorney to become involved. And then we were able to grow the courts to not just be post-conviction courts, but also alternatives to conviction courts. And the model is therapeutic. We have the therapist, we do treatment, we do uh, other cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, we do job counseling. Um, everybody has to get their GED or their high school diploma. We're big on education and we're big on employment. And so, and the idea is as a team, we come together to look at what the intervention is to address the problem. So another example, as it turns out, incarcerating somebody doesn't really treat addiction. You know what treats addiction? Treatment treats addiction. And so obviously there's a place in the criminal justice system for accountability. Uh, sometimes people need to be incapacitated. The, the, this, this model looks at problems that if addressed will eliminate criminal behavior. It seemed, you know, sending people to jail breaks family cycles. The children of incarcerated parents are something like 70, more than 70% likely to be incarcerated themselves. Uh, there are interventions that really help uh, anger management and, uh, and parenting classes do a great job teaching people how to control their anger and how to be good parents. Um, the therapy is, is magical. So that's kind of a long explanation of the collaborative courts projects. But the idea is 
we can do something different to restore people to their community. So they're part of it, not apart from it. And so they're successful. And I, I think it's a great model. I wish they never got to the criminal justice system in the first place, right? Uh, the magic is probably preschools, but uh, there are interventions we can do to address some of the serious problems that members of our community face, but with some help can develop the skills uh, to, they, they do the work themselves. I mean, they're, they're very much the architects of their own successful futures. Yeah, it's minimizing it to say it's a great idea. I think it's an inspirational idea, Judge Bula. I think for me, uh, people always ask, what's the hardest part of my job? And uh, it's the same thing I said in my interview with the district judges, which is incarcerating somebody. I, I mean, like you, I was a former prosecutor. And so, you know, I, it's not that I don't believe that um, there are instances where that is necessary, but that does not make it hard to do it. It's no different than with your family, you know, with your children or whomever. You know, it's hard to at any time, I think, dole out punishment, even if you think it's necessary. But the question is, what happens afterwards? I remember the first time that I spoke to you and was learning about all these programs, you, you, you said, and, you know, the quote sticks with me, is that isn't there a better solution than jail sometimes? And, and you know, either before or then afterwards, just sending someone back to jail, you know, and the recycling and the recidivism. And so uh, I think it's inspirational, the work that you're doing to try to think about ways that courts and judges, um, you know, ultimately, I'm the person who's sending that person away. So don't I have some responsibility in helping to get them back and get them back on their feet? And I'm, I, I find inspiring what you're doing. Footnote, just for our audience, FJC is the Federal Judiciary uh. Center uh, they do the education and a lot of the enrichment programs that we we try to have uh, for the court. But and they're um, fantastic. They do a great. I should have said that I use an acronym that means nothing. It's one of the, my pet peeves in writing. No, no acronyms that don't mean something like FBI. <laughs> Um, uh, and, and one of the things that the, uh, the, the social scientists say, we were fortunate enough, thanks to the FJC, the Federal Judicial Center, our training branch, which has robust training, is uh, in other areas, you don't try the same old thing over and over again if it's not working. You, you identify the problem that you want to solve. You test an intervention, and if it works, great. And if it doesn't work, you test a different intervention. And we try to be evidence-based in our practices. So we're not just, we're not winging it. We're looking at the science of addiction and uh, what kind of interventions work. Um, we look at uh, either, I don't know if you ever listened to the Freakonomics podcast, but there's an article in the original Freakonomics book that something along the lines of if uh, drug dealing is so lucrative, how much, so how why are so many drug dealers living with their grandmothers? And the idea is, you know, it's not very lucrative. And if you can give somebody a great job, as a, uh, uh, then that addresses one of the problems. So there are many, many science-based or, or evidence-based approaches. And we, we're, I think the courts, and it's a team approach. So I want to emphasize how this, the probation officers and the pretrial services officers are really helping with this approach. So I think, and I think it's... Um, I think it goes across political lines too. I think that a lot of yeah. there, it's it's not a Republican thing. It's not a Democratic thing. It's just a person thing. And I think that there is a lot of joint interest in seeing what can we do to address these problems because the societal impact is enormous and we need to do something better for the people who are in our community. Yeah, I agree. Well, uh, we'll close out, but I have to say that one of the quotes that I've heard you say, and it just means so much to me that we have to believe in redemption or else what is the point of what we're doing? And so I think that all the people, you know, students listening, you think about I'm going to become a public defender or work at the Innocence Project, even become a congressperson and, and find ways 
to change the way that the criminal justice system works, they need to hear that there are judge builders out there who are inspiring generations of judges like myself and other ones to, to make a difference as a judge. And so th there's, a, there's a place to do that in the judiciary. So, and then there's um, also important to remember there's lots of ways you can contribute and change the world. It's not, I think public defenders are wonderful jobs, but so is being a prosecutor. You have a lot of power and you can do the right thing. One friend of mine who was a prosecutor said the two great moments in a prosecutor's life are when you send somebody to jail who really needs to be incapacitated because they're predators. And the other is when you give somebody a break. <laughs> and uh, and that's it. So you do have that opportunity. So there are many ways to make a contribution. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll close out our friend, both of ours, former magistrate judge Paul Grewald. He, he uh, taught me to do a lightning round. So I'm going to close out with our lightning round. <laughs> okay. It'll be San Francisco focus. So lightning round, better live in San Francisco or Los Angeles? San Francisco. <laughs> All right. Better, better food scene, San Francisco or New York City? I know this is a tough one, but I mean, it's, it's San Francisco. Our four growing seasons take us over the top. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> two, two final questions. Uh, better tacos? Then we're going to stick food, California or Texas? Oh, I'm going with California, but I want to put new, I want to put Mexico City out there as the best tacos I've ever had in my entire life. My entire oh so so amazing, <laughs> great okay. city, great art, great um, tacos. La, uh, I'll say last question uh, is I know that you I learned uh, play poker game with some other judges. Texas Hold'em best form of poker or what's what's better? Oh, you know, I like a game called Omaha. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. <laughs> so we, I, I, uh, I, uh, so there are lots of different games. Uh, or, or here's here's one that my poker group plays. They play a game called Crazy Pineapple. <laughs> all right. Well, so everyone, your homework for today is go Google Crazy Pineapple and find out what it is, and maybe you'll get to play poker with Judge Beeler. Judge Beeler, thank you so much for your time. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity uh, to talk to you as always. Have a great day. Thank you. Great. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Nice to see you. You've been listening to Grab the Gavel, a podcast series from the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. We hope you've enjoyed this segment and learn more about the Rendell Center's mission and work at rendellcenter.org. Thanks for listening.